Our series is entitled Unfinished. We are examining the book of Acts, called by many the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as we see the, the beginning of the church, uh, the, the events that surround it and take place, that ultimately bring us to the place that we are uh, this morning. So let me get us caught up to where we are in Acts chapter 4. And so if you're just joining us, you don't feel like maybe this is your first Sunday here at Village and I don't want you to feel like you're late to a movie. This is a a, a dramatic story, a dramatic narrative. So let me catch us up uh, to where we're at in Acts chapter 4. You can turn there if you have a Bible. Uh, Acts 4 verse 23 is where we're going to be starting. Um, The book was written by Luke. Luke was a Greek. He was born in the city of Antioch. He became an educated man and a physician as well as later on in life a companion of the Apostle Paul. We see in uh, 2 Timothy that uh, Luke is there with Paul right at the end of Paul's life. History tells us that uh, Luke was martyred at the age of 84 for his faith in Jesus Christ and his testimony for the resurrected Savior. Most scholars understand Luke to be in the tradition of Greek historiography. Um, We can look at Luke chapter 1 and we uh, see this quite clearly. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Theophilus is the individual who commissioned Luke to write not only the historical facts around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the gospel according to Luke, but also to record how the church started and how it began to spread around the world. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven He says, we'll wait for the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in power. People, this first miracle is recorded in the book of Acts is the speaking of tongues, that people are able to speak the name of Jesus and the the glorious gospel message that there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone in all different languages. And then Peter gets up, and at the end of chapter 2, after his sermon, 3,000 people are added to their number. So it's a 3,000 plus church at the end of Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a man who was born crippled. And they, people are astonished. And the crowds come around and they look and see. And Peter once again uses that opportunity to speak the name of Jesus. The mighty and matchless name of Jesus. That Jesus, who, who died because of the sin of the people, can also save because of the resurrection. And so in, in that message, there became problems because they were speaking about a salvation other than what the religious leaders of the day would speak. And so that got them in trouble. And so they were arrested and they were let go, Acts chapter 4, and they come back now in our text to the rest of the church, which is now over 5,000 strong, 5,000 men, so 10, 11, 12,000 people, but they come back to the church to report all that had happened. So things have gotten real, real quick. 
At the end of Acts chapter 2, things were uh, rainbows and butterflies. Do you remember that? They were all together. They were worshiping the Lord. Uh, they, They were filled with awe. Miracles and wonders were being done. They were sharing with each other all that they had. And God was adding to their number daily. That's the end of Acts chapter 2. What a great and glorious thing to be a part of. This movement of God. Salvation. But then it got real because there's persecution when God starts to move and to bring conviction of sin. And so we get to our text in verse 23, and let's just start right here. By the way, this persecution is going to lead to the first uh, martyrdom of a Christian in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. But here they come back with their first report of the persecution, verse 23, Acts 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Okay, let's stop right there. They come back, Peter and John, they've been released. They come back with the report of what had happened. The report that they had healed a man. The report that they had spoken about the name of Jesus. The report that they had been persecuted for that. They've been instructed not to speak about the name of Jesus. But now that they were, they were released, and they're going to tell the rest of the church. Before we get to their reaction to this persecution, let me give you three ways that they could have reacted to this news. Here's three ways that the people, the church, could have reacted to this persecution. Number one, they could have criticized their leaders. That would be easy to do. Some could have said, why did they have to speak? Couldn't Peter and John have kept to themselves? People could have asked, we had a good thing going on. Why did they have to bring persecution upon us? Now this wouldn't be the first time that the people of God responded this way to their leaders. You can go back to the book of, of uh, Exodus and see the nation of Israel, the people of God, grumbling because of the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Exodus 16, we read this. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're complaining. Moses and Aaron, you guys brought us out here. And we're going to die out here. Would It would be better to be back in Egypt, dying with the meat and all the bread. They were hungry. They grumbled about the leadership. When persecution comes, don't criticize your leaders. Secondly, when persecution comes, don't capitulate to your persecutors. Capitulate is a big word. I had to look it up. It means to surrender, to give up. People could have said, well... We better do what they say. We better not heal and speak in the name of Jesus. This is a scary position to be in, if you think about it for a moment. You insert yourself in the story. Your livelihood is on the line. Yet, Yes, your life is on the line. Your family is on the chopping block. It would have been very easy to criticize Peter and John and then do as the authorities had commanded. They could have even spiritualized it. 
Aren't we supposed to be good citizens as Christians? Didn't Jesus say, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's? Why don't we just be quiet, go home, shut the doors, and worship God in secret? To surrender, to give up. When I read this story, and and so much of the time we take God's word in our hands and we read it like we're reading a a fiction book and and we don't think about what it would actually have been like to be there. Um, And and we see that these people are are faced with this first persecution and they're beginning to see that it's not going to be all roses. It's not going to be Acts chapter 2, the end all the time. There's going to be heartache and pain and suffering and persecution and death even for the name of Jesus and for the glory of Christ. That the world would be opposed to them. That the world would hate them. And by the way, this is another example of, of the, the truth of the faith of, of, of God. That this isn't a fairy tale. That these people would stand even in the face of death for the message of Jesus Christ. That they would give of themselves. That they would give of their life. That they would go to the end. That Luke, who wrote this history, would be put to death for Jesus Christ. Jesus is risen. It's no fairy tale. When persecution comes, don't capitulate. Third, when persecution comes, don't compromise your message. Now this would be a tempting one. Um, Maybe... You're not going to criticize your leaders, and maybe you're not going to surrender and just do as, uh, as, they, as they ask, but maybe you'd be tempted to compromise. Just take out the offensive parts so that people will like you and you can avoid persecution. I mean, let's face it, many churches today have chosen that very route. Let's take out the offensive part of of sin and of judgment and of death and all of that messy, bloody stuff and let's just focus on helping people and being good to people and, and loving and caring about people. We won't get in trouble for serving. We won't. But we'll get in trouble for speaking. There's no controversy around serving. All the controversy is around the message. If we just go out and feed the hungry, no problem. We love the hurting, no problem. We give generously to support single moms and kids who don't have a dad, no problem. We have addiction counseling and groups that meet, no problem. We give out coats for cold people and food for the hungry, not a problem. Many churches do that and they forget the gospel. The church in Acts 4 could have said, let's stick with the healing part, but let's forget about the name that healed them. Let's forget about the message of Christ. Let's forget about the truth that there's a call to repentance and change to embrace this life that Jesus Christ has brought. Let's just bring the healing. Compromise. That's appealing. But they didn't. Well, what did they do? Here's the rest of the story. Ready? Acts 4, 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. It's amazing. Amazing response to the persecution that is coming upon them. So when persecution comes, the church is to, number one, pull together. Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voice together. You can almost feel them in the text. You can read it. You can see that they're, they're together as one group. They're not alone. They're stronger together. We are stronger together as a church than a solitary person. The wisest man in the world, Solomon, said it like this in Ecclesiastes. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. You use that verse when I talk to young people who are getting married, and uh, their two are coming together to be one. They're going to be stronger. They're going to be better off together. And then the, the, the strand of three cords is not easily broken. The third is God in a relationship with the husband and wife. It's the same, even in, in a greater sense, across the church, that we're stronger together. That we can do the things that we can't do by ourselves, we can do it with others. There's something special about being together. When we worship together, it's special. When we were singing just moments ago, we're lifting our voices together, that's a special thing. You can do that on your own. You can do that in the shower. God can receive glory in that. But there's something special about being together. There's something special about praying together and casting our cares on God in corporate prayer. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Togetherness is what was happening here. You can almost feel their excitement and their exuberance in, in the face of great persecution. I uh, was thinking about why, why is togetherness so good? And I, I thought back to uh, my high school basketball team. I played basketball in high school, and uh, I don't know why my parents got me involved in, in basketball, but... Uh, um, yeah, 5'10", white, uh, not good at basketball. Um, and so I, I, uh, I played basketball on a team, and we had a great team for being a little school. And we had tall people. And uh, so there's a guy that was 6'5", that started, another 6'5", 6'4", uh, 6'2", and then me. Um, and uh, we'd go to schools and, and play these schools, and we'd walk out of the bus and we walk in, and people are looking, and, uh, and, and they're looking, and if it was just me walking in, that wasn't intimidating at all, but it wasn't just me. It was the guys on my team, and they're big, and they're strong, and I'm with them, and I'm, I'm walking together with them, and there was a sense of, of, of pride there. 
There was a sense of hope that, that I'm part of something greater than just myself. And I know this is a stupid illustration and it's a poor way to say this, but, um, but when I come to church and I'm struggling and there's something in my life that is a struggle in my walk with the Lord and I, I hear Tim preaching and he's standing up here and he's opening the word of God and I can look and I say, I'm with him. I'm with him. He's on the same team as me. And that fires me up when I get here at church on a Sunday morning. I see Mike Fatu out in the parking lot who's facing cancer and, and he's still serving. And I, I can come in and I say, he's on my team. I'm on his team. We're together in this thing. There's something special about it that we can come together as a church no matter where we're at. And there's all different situations going on, but together we're stronger than being alone. The church was together in the, in the face of persecution. And they're fired up as they pray together. I could go on and on about how my faith is bolstered by others. When we get together in small groups and there's, there's people who are raising kids at the exact same place that I am, and Stephanie, we are. Alone, I feel weaker. I know the Lord is with me. It's all about the Lord. But together we're the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We can stand under persecution. We pull together. The church pulled together. So as we pull together, we can't be surprised by persecution. Don't be surprised. Persecution will happen. Jesus told us this. Remember in John 16, verse 33? In this life you will have trouble, he said. In Matthew 10, 22, he said, you will be hated by everyone because of me. I don't know how he could have been any more clear. You're going to be persecuted. Now, there are some people who would say, well, we don't face persecution. We're not losing our jobs. We're not losing our lives. We're... But persecution is not just the extreme end of things or the violent side of, of things. Jesus said this, Matthew five eleven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That is happening right here, today. People say Christians are idiots, they're bigots, they're homophobes. They don't love people who don't agree with them. People say Christians are anti-science, they're intolerant. Christians supported slavery, they'll say. Many false accusations are made against you as a Christian. I am a pastor. Many people think that's a colossal waste of time. Unless, unless I'm just helping people, unless I'm helping people and I forget about the Jesus stuff, then it's okay if I compromise. Many times we're surprised by persecution because we've been sold a package of goods that is really not the true gospel. We've been managed to be, we've been persuaded to... uh, come to Christ to be a Christian because we've been told that God wants to bless us. He wants to give us our best life now, that health and prosperity are found in following Jesus. Tell that to Luke, who was murdered for writing this book. Turn with me if you've got your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, this is often called the, uh, the hall of faith. <clears throat> I 
Starts off, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. Then it goes on to list some of the great heroes of the faith. You can, you can see it in the text as you just look at it. Um, by faith, Abraham, verse 17. Uh, by faith, Joseph, verse 22. By faith, Moses. By faith, all of these great people. Gideon, you see, in verse 23. And David and Samuel. Who through faith, verse 33, look at uh, Hebrews eleven thirty-three. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. What a glorious thing that these, through faith, these people stood and they saw these glorious victories. They saw God work in their midst. They sent armies uh, running away because they were so powerfully used of God. What an awesome thing. They had people who were brought back from the dead through their, their life and their ministry. But then look, second part of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. There's another huge group of people who we would say didn't see any of the victory on this side of eternity. There's a whole group of people who were persecuted and put to death for their faith. Friends, when you stand for Jesus, I'm not talking about in a way that you bring about your own persecution. I'm not talking about that. When you speak the truth in love, when you take a stand for what is right, the world, sin, the sin in the world, and all of the evil therein is going to come against you. And I pray that we would be experiencing the, the power of God in verse 35 and above. But we might be the second part of the chapter where from our perspective there isn't victory. There isn't victory until we see Christ face to face. So persecution will come. When it does, Will we remain faithful? So as we pull together, don't be surprised by persecution or be a solitary Christian. There are some people who think they can be a Christian without the church. People leave the church all the time for a myriad of reasons. I found this website. On, uh, it's called Why We Left the Church. That's, that's not the, the web address, but it was a, a blog, and it had entrances of people who had left the church. And listen to a couple of these stories. The Bible and God were twisted into something ugly and frightening. Most of the time, people just wanted to step on us, to grind their Christian truth into us with their heel. I was so disgusted by the hate radiating from Christians, from churches, it made me sick. And if that's what being a Christian was... What God was, I wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. Another one, I left because the pressure to be perfect created an atmosphere of judgment. I don't know if or when I'll be able to go back. 
I miss the familiarity, but not the nauseating atmosphere of lies. One last one. I left because my youth pastor lied to me. I shared things with him that he said would be between God and us. And a week later, half the congregation knew what I had told him. Now, there are legitimate reasons to be upset and angry at the church or at people in the church. But there are no legitimate reasons to leave the church. Why? Because you can't call yourself a Christian and neglect the church. Well, why not? Christians don't go to church. Christians are the church. So when you neglect the body, you're neglecting who you claim to be at your very core. You are the bride of Christ. You have been called out to be part of the people of God. And you can't do it alone. But can't God save people outside the church? Sure. Can't you worship God anywhere? Yep. But you are called the church. And you were created to be a part of it with other believers. And some of you are introverts, and that's, and it, it, that's daunting and scary, but there's a place for introverts, and there's a place for extroverts. There, there's a place for each one. Listen to the language of Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read this text because it talks about not forsaking the gathering of yourselves together. It talks about not doing away with church. But listen to all of the we's and the us's and the the language, the plurality of who we are. We're not alone. Listen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we can stir one up and other for love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, all the more as we see the day approaching. Us, together, we hold fast, continue on, not alone. So don't be surprised. Don't go it alone. Instead, we are to spur one another on to action. Now, we don't see this here in the text. Um, We're going to get to the prayer here in in a minute. Um, But but that's what they're doing. As they're praying together, as they're together and lifting their voices, there's something happening that they're spurring one another on, and they're encouraging Peter and John that they're not alone, that we're going to spur you on to keep on speaking the name of Jesus. It's, it's for the glory of Jesus. It's, it's for His name. They're spurring one another, and that's what happens at church. That's what we're to do with one another, to spur one another on to love and, and to good works. How many people have heard of CrossFit? Okay. For you two, uh, everybody else, this is new. Um, It is meeting not only the physical needs of its members, but it is also providing a spiritualized community to those involved. What I mean by this, 
uh, is this, that uh, CrossFitters are experiencing more than just a hard workout by being part of a gym. Gyms and other uh, secular communities are starting to take the place of, of really a religious community and society. And people are taking note of this. Casper Takuli, a ministry innovation fellow at Harvard Divinity School, he wrote an article t- entitled, How We Gather. Listen to this. This is amazing. It was a, um, a study that he did with these different communities. And he writes this. These are not places where you go to run on a treadmill with your headphones blasting and make as little eye contact as possible with the people around you. They are inherently communal. With CrossFit, that community includes accountability for your actions, something religion also offers. Terkuli continues, The two most striking things about CrossFitters are their evangelical enthusiasm and the way they hold one another to account. CrossFit expects members to call each other out if they don't appear at their usual time and to let each other know if they're even out of town, if they're not going to be there. There's accountability. And people love it. Well, some people. I went to CrossFit several years ago. And uh, we were just uh, completing our, our WAD workout of the day. And, uh, and I was getting done, and some 20-year-old girl that had already gotten done with the workout, she was yelling at me. And uh, she it was nice. She was just being encouraging. Come on, you can do it. You can, you know, yelling at me. And I never went back. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> the church should be setting the bar with these aspects of community, to help each other grow in the faith and to put it into practice. But far too often, attending a worship service is seen as a waste of time. Being part of a small group is viewed as a bore. Serving in the church is seen as a chore. And we don't realize what we have as a community of people. Small groups. I love small groups. That's part of my job. I love small groups, even if it is hard to go on a night, even if it is a, a chore in some ways to get the kids coming along, getting loaded up, maybe it is uncomfortable at first to get to know new people in the group, but I know that we're, we're going to grow together and we're going to help each other and we're going to laugh together, we're going to cry together, we're going to be together as the church. That's my hope anyway, that's my prayer The church is the greatest place for a person to experience love, acceptance, and accountability. So not only are we to pull together when we face persecution, we're also to pray expectantly. And that's what the people did. Now we don't know exactly how this happened. As we read the story and the narrative, it it seems as though... um, they lifted their voices together, but um, unless if they printed up the, the words of this prayer, I, I don't know if that's really the case, that they were all speaking at the same time, or if it's a language of there was one person who was praying and, and leading them all together in prayer, like that. And they, they lift up their voice and they pray scripturally. They quote Psalm 1, or Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? They start to pray scriptures. And they see Psalm chapter 2 written by David as being fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. He is the anointed one at the end of that passage that they quote. Jesus is the one that they're talking about. It is a good thing to pray pray God's word. If you are struggling with praying and you don't know if you have the right words, which 
By the way, there aren't no right words. Just speak your heart to the Lord. And, and He's a person. And He hears you. But He speaks to us also through His Word. And so you can pray His Word. As you pray His Word, it, it builds confidence that He will do what He said He will do. Lord, You said that in Your Word to cast all of our cares on You because You care for us. So we're doing that together right now. God, You have said in Your Word not to be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We talked about that verse in small group this past week. Through anxiety, through anxious moments. I mean, persecution like this is going to bring about some anxiety. It's going to bring about some times of struggle. And I'm going to claim your word, Lord, that as you said in Philippians chapter 4, that, that, that we cast our cares on you and we pray that you will take our anxiety away and that you will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Pray God's word. Pray scripturally. And pray securely. These people, our forefathers, were so secure in the plan of God. Sovereign Lord, who made all there is, they pray. And then they quote this text, which is really talking about the power of God. That people will try to plan things. That people will come together. That even kings and rulers will have plans, but it is God who is in control. And they prayed that this, you send Jesus, who you planned it and you predestined it to take place. Verse 28. They were secure in their position. They weren't afraid of the persecution. No, they were confident of their position. God was on the throne. God is in control. And nothing that happens to us is, is outside of His control. That's a security like none other. That God's in control. When you pray, know that God is not surprised by anything that is happening in your life. Know God has ordained that it would happen. See, even the bad times? Yes. And in those bad times, He's going to show up and show you why He's good in it. That's a hard place to be. These people, the church right here, were calling out to God in the midst of... Somebody was going to die in, in, in three chapters. And they call out to God with security because at the end of the day, whether they live or whether they die... God's in control and God's on the throne and Jesus died for me and Jesus saved my soul and I can rest content and secure in him. Then thirdly, they prayed a simple prayer. Here's what their requests requests were. Verse 29. Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands, your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they prayed for boldness and they prayed for miracles to accompany their testimony. They didn't pray for deliverance, they didn't ask for God to take away the persecution. They didn't ask God to take away the threats. They said, no, look at the threats, see the threats, and God, give us boldness to speak in the name of Jesus and accompany our testimony with mighty works of power. 
It's an amazing thing. They prayed for the continuance of the very activity which produced the persecution. More miracles, bring it on. More of your spirit being poured out. Simple prayer for boldness. God would give us boldness to speak the name of Jesus, to live for Him in what we do. God would pour out His Spirit and do mighty works and miracles. That's a good prayer. That we would see the vindication of the name of Jesus. The name which is flippantly tossed around in our culture and society and who uh, people think we're idiots for following. That Jesus would be vindicated. That His name would be given glory. That God would show up in a mighty way. Now the cool thing about this text is and I don't know of any other place where the prayer happens, and then we see the answer to the prayer right in the, in the text. Verse 31, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. And there's more miracles to come in Acts. The story's just getting going. And there's more, more times to be bold. And the very fact that you and I are sitting in a church in 2017 in Illinois, in North America, in Sugar Grove, is because the church continued to speak with boldness. And that's why we're here. So here's two application points that we would, number one, pray for boldness to speak the truth of Jesus. That we would speak... And not only the way that we live, but with the words that we use. Pray for boldness. That we'd pray for miracles to accompany their testimony. It's a good prayer. And the second application point, and for, for those of you who are newer to this message, that you would come to repentance and faith in Christ. That you would repent that is to turn from your sin and you'd believe in the good news of, of Jesus. That you would turn to Him as so many people were turning to God here at the beginning of the church. That God would be adding to our number day by day those who are being saved. Those are good prayers. 